0: to hear from your word. Lord, you have refreshed, revived, and convicted me over these truths from this text. I pray, Father, that your spirit would produce similar things in the lives of your people as they listen. I pray, Father, that perhaps some will awaken to the reality that their profession of faith in Christ has been counterfeit and that today they would truly repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and bear the fruit that manifests that reality of their salvation. Lord, we pray that you would change us now, and make us a stronger church, deepen us, and cause gospel growth to take place here this morning. Lord, I pray that we would leave here today a more balanced uh, church, that we would not only love the doctrines and teaching of the Word of God, but that we would love serving people and ministering to one another and to those outside the church as well. Lord, we know these things are precious to you, and so we ask all of this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. I say to you this morning, wake up. Your justification is by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. What does that mean? Well, we're going to spend the next 50 minutes figuring this out. So please take your Bible, if you have it, with you, and let's turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, stand with me in honor of God's word, and we will read Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Nope, we already read that. This is Romans 2, 5 through 11. Romans 2, 5 through 11. This might look easy, but never mind. (laughs) Romans 2, 5 through 11. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. partiality the Lord has spoken and you may be seated this week after yet another mass shooting Governor Gavin Newsom or of California asked this question what is going on in the United States of America what is wrong with us I thought that was a profound question I think Gavin Newsom should be quoted from the pulpit sparingly. (laughs) But every one of us needs to answer this question. What's wrong with us? We have to answer this question. This is the great test. What is the answer? The encouraging thing is this is an open book exam. But the vast majority of people in the world will never bother to open the book to find the answer. In the early paragraphs of the ancient letter to the Romans, Paul has a very definite goal. He's working hard to demonstrate that both Gentiles and Jews deserve and will experience the full fury of the wrath of God because of sin. In chapter 1, he taught us that God is already pouring out the wrath of abandonment upon the Gentiles for their sin. And then in chapter 2, to make sure the Jews didn't think they were exempt from all of this, he turns to the Jews, the moralists, as we might call them, who make a show of obedience to God's law, but who are just as guilty in the eyes of God as the Gentiles ever were. The Jews were under the impression that God's patience and kindness toward them during the days that Paul lived and around those years, that this was evidence that they somehow lived under the perpetual smile of God. They thought for sure that entrance into heaven was a sure thing, that it was guaranteed them by virtue of the fact that the Jewish culture was grounded In God's law, they viewed themselves as righteous and everyone else as unrighteous. But while man looks on the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. God knows the heart. And what God sees in the hearts of every, even every conservative Jewish person, is no better than what he sees in every Gentile person. From God's perspective, his kindness and patience toward them was merely an extended opportunity for for them to repent and believe, to read their own scriptures and discover that Jesus is the promised Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hence, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, beloved, because the Jews had a high view of their own morality their own righteousness, they mistakenly believed that when they die, God would welcome them with open arms on the merits of their relative morality. And just on a personal note here, I want to say that I think it it no exaggeration to say that 98% of the people that I've shared the gospel with over the years have expressed the same sentiment. They believe that when they stand before God, he will see that they are relatively good and relatively moral and relatively righteous compared to people who are obviously evil and wicked in the eyes of men, people like the most recent mass murderers in our country. I mean, if you're going to compare yourself with them, you're always going to look good. Not in the eyes of God. My friend, Paul wants us to know that this is a very precarious and dangerous place to stand. Why? Well, because in the eyes of God, no one is sufficiently righteous or moral. If God's chosen people, the ex- the exclusive benefactors of his covenant, his law, and his promises are not considered righteous in the eyes of God, what hope does anyone else have? So where do, where do the Jews, who outwardly live by some semblance of God's law, where do they stand in the eyes of God? Well, listen to Paul's stunning answer, verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with us is that we are sinners from the heart. We live in a state of sin, and we sin because we want to we are sinners, and apart from the transformative work of the Holy Spirit, all of our hearts are hard and impenitent toward God. And because of that, we are storing up wrath for the day of wrath when God pours out his judgment. This is jolting. This is shocking. Paul is actually teaching that those whom we typically think of as, as good people, moral people, are actually not earning any merit with God for their relative goodness. Everybody has a person that they point to, you know, as the, as the paragon of virtue and morality. Mother Teresa, for example. Mother Teresa, I mean, if you want to be holy, be like Mother Teresa, You know what, she may have done some wonderful things, but that doesn't mean that she has been justified by faith in the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look at some people as moral and holy, and and indeed they may be. But that morality doesn't win eternal life. It doesn't merit eternal life. So even though they, they know deep inside that they are sinners, their hearts balk at the notion of personal repentance. What do I have to repent of? I mean, I, I'm no murderer. I'm no adulterer. Jesus would take issue with that. They refuse to humble themselves before God, agreeing with him that their righteousness is but pretense and posturing. They fail to throw themselves upon the mercy of the court. Their pride will simply not allow them to truly own their sin for what it is. It is an affront to God. It is a breach of his commandments. It is contrary to his nature. And if God lives in a perfect heaven, why would he allow you in there? Why would he allow me? Notice with me here that Paul describes their hearts as hard. The word here for hard means rigid, not easily bent or broken. You know, in the Old Testament, God referred to his people often as a stiff-necked and rebellious people. This is the same kind of term. They have stubborn hearts, that, a stubborn heart that pushes back against the charge that they are not really good in the eyes of God. I mean, don't you think of yourself as good in the eyes of God? Not all of you do, but at least in my efforts to convince people that they need to trust in Christ, it seems to be the universal opinion that they're good in the eyes of God, good enough anyway. They don't realize that the reality is that even by holding that position, they are stiff-necked and rebellious against God's call. To repentance, True believers, however, are characterized by those whose hearts are docile and easily broken by the Spirit of God. They have tender hearts and are under the sway of the Spirit and the Word. They love to hear the Bible read and preached. They read it themselves. They put themselves under it. They don't try to rewrite it or reinterpret it. And such people are not offended at all by God's call to repentance. They actually live by repentance and faith every day. You show me a truly godly man, I'll show you someone who talks to the Lord about their sin every day. And they're not depressed about that because they know the grace of God. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. On the other hand, while the unregenerate person continues to believe that his or her relative morality, relatively moral life, is earning them merit in heaven, they are actually, verse 5, storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God pours out his righteous judgment. This is a day when God will finally judge. The implication here is that there is an appointed day. There is an appointed time when God's righteous wrath will be revealed. In the Old Testament, it was often referred to as the great and terrible day of the Lord. In the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, it's referred to as the judgment. And you know what? Everybody used to at least give some semblance of understanding or belief in judgment day. It used to be called judgment day. When everybody, it seemed like everybody I knew, even all the unbelievers that I knew, believed that one day there would be a judgment day. God will render to each one according to his, what's the next word? According to his. Now I know, some of you are tempted to say right now, according to their belief. It's not what he says. According to their works. Is that confusing to you? It should get your attention, because this is what Paul says. Now, the important thing to note here is the phrase, each one. In this context, Paul is not referring to unbelievers only, but to all people. Believers and unbelievers are alike. He will judge us according to our works. Some of you are thinking, heresy. Hang on, stay with me. Be docile to the word of God and the spirit of God. What kind of judgment will this be? And how is it brought to bear on the the lives of men? Well, that's a good question. And as we look at the following verses, we're going to discover, here's the outline, the reward of unrighteousness, the fruit of righteousness, the necessity of Christian works, and the application of of Christian works. Let's start with the first one, the reward of unrighteousness. Now, I call it the reward of unrighteousness because Paul says such people are storing up wrath for themselves. Leon Morris helpfully explains that in the context here, the word storing up is connected to the idea of treasure. I'll remind you that Jesus taught um, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the idea of treasure is connected, and, and it means to lay something up as your treasure. Jesus again said, lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven where moth and rust cannot corrupt and where thieves can't break in and steal. It's the same kind of word here. The, the person Paul has in mind, however, is It's really in for a big shock when they arrive at the judgment seat of Christ to discover that the only wealth they have laid up for eternity is a wealth of wrath from God. They will be rich, not in heavenly inheritance, but in righteous judgment. What will be the reward for unrighteousness? Well, look with me at... Verses 8 and 9, and the way I'm going to work through this is, is a little bit odd, and you may notice that as you're looking at your text and fo- trying to follow along with me. There's a chiastic structure here that I don't want to get into. Those of you who know what that mean, uh, means, you can look at it later, but, um, but let's start here. What is the reward for unrighteousness? Well, look with me at verses 8 and 9. And here's what we read from Paul. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. This is just supporting what Paul has been saying in this passage, that in the end, we will all be judged according to our works. This is the reward of the unrighteous, tribulation and distress. This is is Paul's way of describing the wrath of God upon them, which they will experience forever. So this is their reward. But Paul also reveals a second judgment, we might call it, the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness. If, If I had time to go back and rethink the outline before I had had it printed this week, I probably would have just identified this second point as the reward of righteousness. Sometimes I try to be too clever and outwit myself. This may be, it just didn't work. But here we go. I want you to look at verses 7 and 10. The reason I want to want you to see 7 and 10 again is because of that chiastic structure where he talks about the unbeliever in the middle, but he he bookends it with uh, talk about the believer on one side and the believer on the other. And so he says this, verse 7, to those who by patience, this is by way of contrast to the unbeliever, to those who by patience in well-doing, there's good works, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Seeking for glory here is, by the way, not about self-exaltation but rather it's about the righteous expectation of future glorification. One day we will not only be justified and sanctified, we will be glorified. And we look forward to that day when we see Christ face to face and the battle with sin and the flesh and the devil will be over. Believers who are mature and, in, and growing in grace, they... They love that doctrine. They're pursuing it. They're they're seeking it. They can't wait for it to happen. And the word honor is probably a reference to honor, um, the kind of honor that will be bestowed on a person when they see Jesus face to face and they hear words like this, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Don't you want to hear that? And then immortality, they're pursuing immortality. Immortality points to the fact that even in death, the believer will not die. Jesus says, everyone who lives and believes in me will, what? Never die. Death is simply a doorway to life, eternal life. We long for these things. We live for them. They are what? fills us with hope in this life, in every struggle. And some of you are really struggling today. This is what gives us hope. And then he says in verse 10, speaking also of believers, there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who... What do you think the next words are? Everyone who believes... It's not what he says. For everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now notice Paul's repeated phrase to the Jew first and also the Greek. In other words, at the judgment seat of Christ, Jews and Gentiles will be judged by God according to the same standard. For there is no partiality with God. That's Kind of Paul's thesis statement for this section of Romans. That all of us are sinners, all of us will face judgment, and that judgment will be impartial. There is no partiality with God. So while it is true that the gospel is for the Jew first, and for the Gentiles also, judgment is for the Jews first. Probably because they were so privileged by God and still rejected him. Each will be judged according to their works. Now, this raises an obvious and alarming question. How does judgment based on works fit into the context of a discussion with believers in Rome about justification by faith alone? Okay, so that's Paul's thesis for the whole book. Where does righteousness come from? His answer is, Christ for righteousness. You are justified or declared righteous by God through faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Or, just to simplify it the way Paul presents it here in the beginning parts of Romans, it is justification by faith alone. That's the thesis for his book. That's the, gr- the foundation stone of the whole letter, So how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile this call to good works and the judgment based on our works with justification by faith alone? Yet here he is, Paul, teaching us that at the judgment, God will render to each one according to his works. Now, I think there are two options here in unraveling this. And I'll tell you up front that the second one is the right one. But here's the first one. It's plausible, um, but I think wrong. But those of you who love the doctrines of grace, you're going to try to figure this out, and you may end up inadvertently on option number one. But I'm going to show you why option two is better and I think you'll understand option two better after I explain option one. Okay, enough of that. <laughs> option one. Paul, perhaps Paul means to say that eternal life would be based on perfect obedience if anyone could achieve it, but nobody can. Right? So we're, we're in agreement. Maybe at least with part of it. So, eternal life will not accord with our works. Therefore, we must turn to the gospel and believe. Maybe that's what he's saying. I want to suggest to you that's not what he's saying. Here's option two. Paul, rather, wants us to understand that God never promised that eternal life would be based or merited on perfect obedience. He never said perfect obedience would bring you salvation but he has always commanded that there be a life of obedience to vindicate or to prove the reality of your faith, which unites us to God as our righteousness. Let me say that again. Paul wants us to understand that God never promised that eternal life would be based on or merited by perfect obedience, but that he has always commanded that there... There must be a life of obedience to vindicate or prove the reality of faith which unites us. That is, that faith unites us to God as our righteousness. Our faith unites us to Christ who is our righteousness. Now, before I show from Scripture why we should embrace option two, let me first solidify in our minds that Paul does, in fact, teach not salvation by works, as every religion teaches, but rather that he teaches that salvation, justification, is by faith alone. Justification is by faith alone. Now let me clarify again what justification means. It means to declare Righteous. This is what we need. There is a righteousness that we desperately need, don't have, and cannot earn. So, where do we get righteousness from? We get it by God graciously, on the merits of Christ, declaring us righteous because of the righteous life and bloody death of Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. Now I want to I solidify this in your mind that this is what Paul teaches. And um, I don't usually ask you to keep up with me in looking at various passages of Scripture. But everybody do this. Everybody just crack your knuckles and stretch out, you know, your arm and finger muscles because I really want you to go to every one of these texts. I'm going to try to give you enough time to get there. We're going to have to move quickly, though. I put them in order so you can maybe get there quickly, and I'm wasting time here. So let's, uh, let's just do it. Romans 3.28. Romans 3.28. Paul writes, for we maintain that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Is that clear? Turn the page to chapter 4, Romans 4, 5. But to the one who does not work but believes or has faith, in him who justifies, that's believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. It's justification by faith as alone. As justification by faith alone. Faith, your faith, just as with. And what Paul's going to do later on is he's going to point back, and James will do the same thing. He will point back to Abraham and say that his faith in God, his belief that God is trustworthy, and therefore he was willing to take the life of his own son, therefore he was willing to believe that he would have a son. And when Abraham believed God, God counted that as righteousness. Paul will appeal to that story. James will also appeal to that story in different ways. That's Romans, what did we cover, 4, four verse 5? Turn the page again, perhaps, Romans 5, one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now a couple more pages, Romans eight. 33 and 34. Who shall bring, I still hear you turning your pages, Romans 8, 33 through 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And you remember verse 1 of chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the question, who will bring a charge against God's elect? The answer is, Satan will, but it won't stick the judge will not accept it. Why? Because those sins, whatever sins they are that are being thrown up against us, all of them have been sufficiently paid for by the blood of our faithful Savior. Can there be any doubt that Paul's gospel was the good news of justification by faith? that you don't have to earn it, that you don't have to pay back, commensurate with your sins. You'd never be able to pay it back. You can never pay it back. So say it with me now. The just shall live, how? By faith. And yet, Paul clearly says in our text for this morning that God will render to each one according to his works. In other words, while it is absolutely true that sinners are justified by faith alone, the evidence that proves or vindicates the reality of that faith consists of our works. How we live. How we live. That's why I entitled this, this message, Right Now Counts Forever. How you live counts forever. We might say this, invisible faith is made visible by our works. Or I could add another word, invisible saving faith is made visible or is proven authentic by our works. And this brings us to the third point, the necessity of good works. Let me start by demonstrating this teaching from the book of Romans, because I want you to, to see that it fits perfectly. It fits perfectly with what Paul has already said. Paul is writing, I want to remind you, to Christians in Rome. He is not so much attempting to evangelize them, they already know the Lord, Certainly he wanted to go to Rome in part to evangelize the lost who were either in the church or hanging out near the church or were available to speak to. He is not so much attempting to evangelize them so much as he is wanting to teach us about the inner workings of our great salvation. To the Philippian jailer, when he said, what must I do to be saved? And you remember Paul's simple response, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And Paul saying, I know you know it's deeper than that. There's all kinds of things that God has done to bring that about. There is complexity, deep, rich, eternal complexity behind that very small simplicity. How does God save us? He saves us by justification, by faith alone. But how can you or anyone else have confidence that you are truly justified? Paul will teach us that the faith that saves is a faith that eagerly works or strives for the glory of God, not to earn salvation, but as the fruit of salvation. And so justification is by faith alone. But as Martin Luther said, nevertheless, the faith that saves is never alone. And by that he meant, and the Apostle Paul means, and the other authors of the New Testament, what they mean by that is, if you are truly born again, you will bear fruit. You will bear fruit. Romans 6 22, we're going to go through another list of scriptures here. I don't want to try to convince you by logic. I want you to see these things in the word of God. You wrestle with the word of God. That's why I want you to look these up as I go along. Again, Romans six twenty-two. Now listen to the apostle Paul. He says, but now that you have been set free from sin, what does that mean? You have been born again. You've been redeemed, you've been regenerated, you've been saved. It's already happened. But now that you have been set free and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You see, when a sinner is truly justified by faith alone, he becomes a willing, joyful slave of God I don't know about you, but when I I trusted in Christ and knew that my sin was forgiven, all of my sin, all of my wretchedness, all of my shame, all of it was forgiven. You know what my first impulse was? God, tell tell me what to do. I'll do it. And you've already given me salvation. I got it. I love it. I want to grow in it. Give me something to do for you. Not to earn salvation, but just as an act of worship and love and praise to God. Give me some work to do. And I didn't hear a voice from heaven. But you know what? That's why I went into ministry. Not everybody should do that. But that's what God wanted me to do. I didn't know it at the time. But I began to know it. When immediately after, as I was at Word of Life Bible Institute in New York, I started hearing the Word of God like I never heard it before. And it wasn't that there was new truth. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a pretty good church. But you know what? I now had the Spirit in my life. And he created in, within me a taste for Scripture, a taste for the Word of God. I just couldn't get enough of it we become joyful slaves joyful servants of god eager to do the master's business that is we get busy serving christ and his people it's part of our sanctification it's part of our sanctification and our sanctification takes place as we eagerly serve christ so that was romans 6:22 Turn to Romans 8, 12 through 13. Romans 8, 12 through 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Again, he's he's speaking to believers. If you live according to the flesh... You will die. And by the way, that's exactly what he's saying back here in chapter 2. If you live according to the flesh, it's just a different way of stating it. If you live according to the flesh, you, you will die. The flip side of that, there's a couple of places, in, in, like in Galatians uh, 5, the fruit of the Spirit, and in uh, First Corinthians uh, 6, where Paul gives this list of sins... And he he says, I've warned you before and I'm warning you again that people who act like this, people who do such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or more simply, I like to say it like this, people who act that way go to hell. Because it demonstrates, that kind of living demonstrates that you don't have the Spirit of God. Listen, when the Spirit of God The Holy Spirit comes into a sinful man. One of you is going to change. It's not going to be the Spirit, it's going to be you. You're going to change. You're going to change. The God who had the power to save you also has the power to sanctify you. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you will grow in sanctification, you will change. the Spirit is in you, your life will reflect it. He says, but if if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This passage delivers the death blow to easy believism. Where this doctrine of sanctification is not taught in the church, it's easy for people to conclude that after they're born again, sin doesn't matter. I am of the opinion that there is more unholiness in the church than at any other time in my life. And one of the reasons for that is because we have lost the doctrine of judgment. We are so enamored with grace, and I'm tempted to say, you could could never be too enamored by grace. And maybe that's true. Maybe we, we, we don't understand grace enough or love it as much as we should. But I will tell you this, that the teaching of only grace in the church, I fear, has lulled people to sleep with regard to their sin. Believing somehow that because Jesus died for me and his grace that is greater than my sins Has flooded me, and I don't have to worry about sin anymore. I can divorce my wife. I can look at pornography. I can hate other people. God will forgive me. That's the attitude of an unbeliever. It's the attitude of an unbeliever. So it's easy for people to conclude that after they're born again, sin doesn't matter. And you might ask yourself, really, do people believe that? I'll give you one illustration that I've shared with you before. I've mentioned in in previous messages that there was a song on Christian radio a few years ago that was one of the hottest songs on the Christian market. And there's a refrain in the middle of that song that goes like this. Otherwise, the song is really good, and it's an exaltation of the grace of God. But then they, they fall into what we might call hyper-grace when they say this in the song. Here are the words. On the days I lose the battle, I take that to mean sin, grace reminds me it don't matter because the cross has already won the war. I think Paul rolls over in his grave every time that song is played. Yes, the cross has won the war. And his victory empowers his people to conquer sin and live righteously. Not perfectly. We're not talking about perfection. But we are talking about living by repentance and faith. One of those good works that God calls you to do is to repent. And keep on repenting. Believe and keep on believing. Keep a humble heart before God. And if someone charges you with sin, your first impulse should be, maybe they're right. Repentance when we sin and faith that enables us to be pleasing to the Lord with how we live. And Now turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Galatians 6, 8 and 9, this is just like uh, pulling a text out of Romans because Paul also wrote Galatians and the message of Galatians is the same as the message of Romans. The difference is when Paul wrote Galatians, he was mad. So it was short, but he covers the same um, theological territory. So Galatians 6, 8 and 9. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap, look at the next word, eternal life. Let me read that again. But the one who sows to the Spirit or keeps in step with the Spirit or walks with the Spirit shall reap eternal life. Who are those who reap eternal life? Those who walk in the Spirit. Again, not perfection. We're going to talk about that again here in just a minute. And then he says, and let us not grow weary in, what's the next two words? Doing good. For in due season you will reap. You will reap what? Eternal life. If we do not give up. Persevering. Now notice that the word corruption here in this verse is the opposite of eternal life. Corruption means you die, you decompose, and in a spiritual sense, you go to the place of death. Those who live according to the flesh reap corruption, but those who live by the Spirit reap eternal life. This is is antithetical. These are opposites. They're polar opposites. Those who reap corruption and those who reap eternal life. And then turn with me to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Ken Basinger always reminds me, or used to always remind me, that whenever we quote, where's Ken? Do I hear him laughing? There he is. Uh, Don't quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 without also quoting verse 10. And you're going to see why that's important. So we all know this verse. We learned it in Cubbies, right? (laughs) Romans 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved. Now, how have you been saved? Come on, say it out loud. By grace you have been saved through faith. So there's justification by faith alone. It's grace alone through faith alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is not of works. Well, let me just read it because I kind of messed up the order. <laughs> For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's justification. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Watch this. Not a, as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's verses 8 and 9. And that's wonderful. You know what he's talking about? Justification by faith alone. End of story, right? No, there's a verse 10. For, and here's his explanation, why salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, and not by your works. For, We are his workmanship created. Okay, so this is creation language. God created the heaven and the earth, and he created you. He created faith in your heart. He created you as a believer. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Really? I I thought we as Christians don't talk about good works. I mean, the Catholic. Paul talked about good works all the time. We just don't pay attention to it. We it, it's like we it's like when, whenever we come to a, a passage in the Bible that we don't understand and we just keep reading, just keep on keep on swimming. You know, nothing to see here. I don't understand what it means. You know, I love verses eight or seven eight and nine, but verse ten, not sure what that means. Just keep moving. Paul's telling us what it means. It's important. Your works matter to God. Your works matter to God. And and I want you to notice here that salvation is said to be, you've got to get the prepositions right here, by grace, through faith, those are two foundational stones, but notice the third preposition, for good works. It is not the good works that save you. The good works are a manifestation, authentication, or vindication that you are born again. And then in case this hasn't persuaded you, turn to James. This is a big jump. James 2, 26. And... James makes it very, he gives illustrations. You can look it up yourself later today, what he means by that. James 2.26 says this, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead. Okay, you're following his logic here? Can we just get the first part of his logic? What do you call a body that has no spirit? Dead. Right? Doesn't matter whether it's a human body or whether it's a a turkey or a hog or anything else you want to hunt when the spirit's gone, they're dead. And so he says, just as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from, what's the next word? Works is dead. James goes out of his way in his little epistle to say, You say that you believe? Oh, you say that you believe? Oh, you say that you believe? The demons believe, and they shudder. It's the difference. true believer says they believe, and their belief, their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is evidenced by their attitude toward Scripture, by their attitude toward the church, by their attitude toward people who sin against them, Notice he does not say that faith without works is immature, which is a common belief today, even from the seminary I graduated from. It's not that faith without works is immature or weak. He says faith without works is dead. What does it mean when he says dead? He means the same thing we mean when we look into a casket and see a man who is not breathing. He is dead. He's dead. He is is useless to anyone and anything. He can't do anything anymore. There's no power there. There's no life there. There's nothing there. He's dead. In the same manner, a person who is not joyfully serving Christ, seeking to please Christ with his life, striving against sin, seeking to be useful to the master, James says that man's profession of faith, if he's characterized by those things, his faith is useless. It is without merit. He is, he probably has a phony faith. Now, who am I to judge? Well, I'm, I'm no one. And, and I would never say to a person, I know for a fact that you're lost. But I have many times said to people that I've counseled, I see no evidence In your life, based on everything that you've told me about your life, I see no evidence that you're a child of God. And they may ask me and have asked me, are you questioning my faith? To which I always respond, why aren't you? The most loving thing I can do for you is to show you that you are out of sync with the word of God who says all of these things that we've talked about this morning. Now again, don't misunderstand me. We all stumble. You know what? Your pastors stumble. We sin. We all stumble. We all go through patches of struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. No one this side of heaven will attain perfection. The question is not one of perfection. It's one of direction. Even the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, it's not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I, what? I press on. Can I just tell you, that's sanctification, that's good work. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Why am I doing it? Am I doing it so I can earn a relationship with Christ? No, I'm doing it because I have a relationship with Christ. So this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward. You see work there? I didn't look it up, but straining, I I suspect it's agonizomai in the Greek, from which we get the word agonize. Straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He knows there's going to be a day, a day of reckoning a day when all wrongs are made right, but a day when all of your life will be evaluated by the eyes of God. And he will either see you as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, or he will see you naked before God with all your sin exposed. And so Paul is teaching us about the reward of unrighteousness, the reward of righteousness, the necessity of Christian work, and finally, and briefly, the application of Christian work. Perhaps you're a young Christian or a Christian who is just kind of getting his, back, his feet back under him, and you're sitting here thinking, I love the Lord, and I want to serve him. Where do I begin? That's a great question, and I would say, Begin with the Bible. Begin with the scriptures. The first and most important good work you can do is to get to know your Savior. In fact, in John 17, Jesus defines eternal life. And here's what he says. Eternal life is to, he's speaking to his Father, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. The Lord has revealed himself in, in his word. And so discipline yourself to, and avail yourself of every opportunity that you can that will deepen your knowledge of Christ and deepen your love for Christ. You know what? I, I've got a, a network of close friends who are pastors, associate pastors and elders and we're all pastors. And so often, so many of them, these are some of the most mature men that you'll ever meet in the world. And you ask them, how can I pray for you? And their immediate response is, pray that I'll love Jesus more. Pray that I'll be more faithful to him. That's the heart of someone who knows Christ. Does the Bible say anything about the need for you to be devoted to the local church? If so, then do that. Does the Bible teach you about confession of sin? And whatever it says, do it. Don't do it to earn your salvation or win God's love for you. Believe me, he already loves you. According to John 17, he loves you as much as he loves his own son. And you will never lose that. Rejoice in that. Delight in that. Don't worry about losing his favor or losing his relationship with you because of sin. You are his. You belong to him. He has adopted you into his forever family. And that can never change. And just practically speaking, can I just encourage you to not try to do everything the Bible says all at once? (laughs) Don't worry about that. Just, the Lord will providentially lead you. You'll open your Bible and read something, and you'll go, oh, I hadn't thought about that before. Or not in a long time. I should do that. I should do that today. I should make that call. I should go to that person's house. My neighbor's moving. and I ought to be over there helping. Honey, I'm going next door. I'll be back in an hour or five hours. <laughs> Just strive to be faithful. Here, here's the thing. Don't try to do everything. Just try to be faithful in the next decision. Live biblically. And all of that falls under the heading of begin with the Bible. And beyond that, I would say Become alert to the, the people around you who have need. Of course, the first priority is your home. If you're a husband, a wife, parent, your focus of good works ought to be there. Most of it ought to happen there. In your home. Serve the Lord in your home. Now, one of the things that we said to uh, Savannah and... Randy, when we, we hired Randy, uh, he said, what is, what, is your, what is the elder's expectation of your wife? And I remember looking at Susanna, <laughs> Savannah and saying, uh, our expectation of you is that you'll be a faithful mom and nurture your children. Do good works there. So second, be on the lookout for friends and neighbors or even strangers who have need that you can meet then go to that person with, and, and bring them your good works because you belong to Christ, because you love Christ. Now, I'm, I'm relatively confident that some who are listening to me right now are going to leave here thinking, oh, great, now I have to do a bunch of stuff. And you know what? For, for someone who's walking with Jesus, it never feels like a bunch of stuff. Maybe never is too strong a term. It's really not a bunch of stuff. It's, You know why God created you? He created you in his image so that you would image forth the glory of God. In other words, that you would show the world what God is like. That's what your works are for. Your good works show something of the glory of God that shows what God is like. What is God like? He's merciful. He's kind. He's patient. He's sacrificial. He's all of these things. And you can do all of that By the grace of God. Think of it this way. Between your salvation and your ultimate glorification, God gives you opportunity to show the world what he is like in ways that perhaps you've never thought before. Years ago, uh, um, I had a favorite author that I would read all the time. He's an English Puritan named Thomas Watson. If you've not read any of the Puritans, you should read Thomas Watson. He's easy to read. And he had a sermon and a, a little book that Solideo Gloria pulled together that was called, here's the name of his sermon, How God is His People's Great Reward. It, it comes from God speaking to Abraham and says to him, most translations says, uh, most translations read, um, Abraham, I am God, your reward shall be great. I think a better way to translate that text is, Abraham, I am God, your great reward. And in that sermon, he says this, Let this thought that God is his people's great reward stir up in us a spirit of activity for God, Our heads should study for him. Our hands should work for him. Our feet should run in the way of his commandments. Alas, how little all that we can do. How little is all that we can do. Our work bears no proportion with our reward. Isn't that the case? Our work, no matter how much we do, is never in proportion to the reward. The thoughts of this reward should make us rise off the bed of sloth And act with all our might for God. It should add wings to our prayers and weight to our alms. End quote. And I know this has gone long, but let me just end with one more thing to think about. You know why I'm preaching this to you today? Two reasons. Number one, this is the next text. But more importantly... The Apostle Paul requires me, requires me to teach this to you. I'm teaching you these things because Paul told me to do so. There are certain exhortations that Paul gives in his letters that are spe- specifically directed at pastors. And so, to your pastor, Paul writes these words. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training them to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, and to live lives, self controlled, upright, godly lives. In in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. All of that verbiage about what God has done to save us culminates in the final statement. For his own possession, who are zealous for good works. We see this again in in Timothy when they're coming up with a list of widows that they're going to take care of, and she has to be known for her good works. It's one of the qualifications. Or, let me just close with this. This is how Jesus would say it. If you're not impressed with Paul if you're not impressed with James, if you're not impressed with the other texts we've read, then at least listen to Jesus, who said these words. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen? Lord, thank you for this teaching. It is both Refreshing and convicting. Lord, we, as a somewhat reformed church, we love the doctrines of grace. We talk often of the doctrines of grace. We delight in our redemption. We talk much about your crucifixion and your resurrection. Our hope for glorification we almost never talk about good works. And yet you talk about it all over the New Testament. So help us, Father, to be better balanced. Help us to repent of our laziness, of allowing ourselves to be lulled to sleep by an imbalanced view of grace. No, oh, Father, I pray that our deepening understanding of grace would propel us into the lives of other people, that they would see in us the Lord Jesus Christ and want to know him as we know him. And then, Father, help us to be faithful, not only to live before them, but to speak truth, to bring the gospel to bear. Father, And let us not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Lord, may we be found faithful with it in the name of our Savior, Jesus.